good morning. I'm Larry Diamond, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and I'd uh, like to welcome you to the special uh, joint event of the Hoover Project on Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific region and the Hoover Project on China's global sharp power. Few topics in international affairs are timelier and more important to the future of democracy globally and to US national security than the theme of our discussion today, the United States, China and Taiwan a strategy to prevent war. In the wake of China's tragic slow motion strangulation of Hong Kong's freedom and autonomy, and its increasingly assertive projection of military, economic, and geopolitical power throughout the Indo-Pacific region, the threat that China poses to Taiwan's security uh, has taken on a uh, decided new urgency. Of course, this issue isn't new. Uh, it came to a head quite some time ago, and some think, some think it came closer to military conflict than is generally recognized in 1996, when in the face of threats and military intimidation by China around the time of Taiwan's first direct presidential election, President Clinton sent two aircraft carrier battle groups to either end of the Taiwan Straits. Our Stanford and Hoover colleague, then Secretary of Defense William Perry, was critical to the decision-making that led to that forthright deployment. And one of our panelists today, our Hoover colleague, Admiral James Ellis, commanded one of those two aircraft carrier battle groups that led the contingency response operations. In 1996, China backed down from its belligerence and Taiwan compl successfully completed its transition to democracy by reelecting the president China despised, Li Dengwei. In the quarter century since then, Taiwan has thrived to become a leading economic and technology innovator and one of the world's uh, most uh, important producers of advanced semiconductors as one of Asia's most spirited and liberal democracies. But with China's extraordinary pace of military expansion and modernization, the threat it poses to Taiwan has markedly increased. Foreign policy and national security specialists in the US and in Asia are now debating, could the US compel China to back down from a future course of military intimidation and potentially coercion the way it did in 1996? Should it even attempt to do so? What is at stake for the US? And if I may use a quaint phrase for the free world in the conflict between China and Taiwan? And how can we prevent that conflict from becoming a war? In the current context, when China's become a near peer competitor of the US globally, with rising ambitions for regional hegemony in Asia, these are uncomfortable but unavoidable questions. In their report released in February by the Council on Foreign Relations with the same title as today's event, our two speakers, Robert Blackwell and Philip Zelico, have performed a great service in clarifying the risks and potential scenarios with extraordinary honesty and lucidity. 
So now let me introduce the two of them and our two commentators, and then they will uh, present. Robert Blackwell is the Henry A. Kissinger Senior Fellow for U.S. Foreign Policy at the Council on Foreign Relations and the Diller von Furstenberg Family Foundation Distinguished Scholar at the Henry Kissinger Center for Global Affairs at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Among his many foreign policy roles and his distinguished career of government service were U.S. Ambassador to India and Deputy National Security Advisor to President George Bush. He also taught foreign policy and defense policy for 14 years at the Kennedy School of Government. Philip Zelico is the White Burkett Miller Professor of History and Miller Center Wilson Newman Professor of Governance at the University of Virginia. Following a career in the Foreign Service, he taught and directed research programs at Harvard and the University of Virginia. He directed the 9-11 Commission and he served as counselor of the State Department under Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, with whom he has co-authored two books. General Jim Mattis served during 2017 and 2018 as the 26th U.S. Secretary of Defense. During his more than four decades in uniform, Secretary Mattis commanded Marines at all levels, from an infantry rifle platoon to a Marine expeditionary force. He led an infantry battalion in Iraq in 1991, an expeditionary brigade in Afghanistan after the 9-11 attacks, a Marine division in the initial attack, and subsequent stability operations in Iraq in 2003. From 2010 to 2013, he served as commander of U.S. Central Command, directing military operations of more than 200,000 American and allied forces across the Middle East. He is now the Davies Family Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Admiral James Ellis served for 39 years in the United States Navy. His service as a Navy fighter pilot included two tours um, with carrier-based uh, fighter squadrons and assignment as commanding officer of an F-A-18 strike fighter squadron. In 1991, he assumed command of the USS Abraham Lincoln, a nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. As I noted earlier, he served as a carrier battle group commander in 1996, leading contingency response operations in the Taiwan Straits. He also served as commander-in-chief U.S. Naval Forces Europe and commander-in-chief Allied forces Southern Europe during the time of historic NATO expansion, and he led U.S. and NATO forces in combat and humanitarian operations during the 1999 Kosovo crisis. He is now the Annenberg Distinguished Visiting Fellow at Hoover and co-chair of the National Security Task Force, and I'm pleased to announce that he's agreed to also chair the Hoover Project on Taiwan in the Indo-Pacific region which will become part uh, of the National Security Task Force. I look forward to partnering with him as his co-chair, and if I may say so, Jim, maybe co-pilot. In any case, uh, we're so delighted to have Robert Blackwell and Philip Zelico with us to present their extremely influential and important paper. And now I turn it over to them. 
Thank you, Chairman, and uh, thanks uh, to Hoover for having us, and uh, thanks to everybody for tuning in. Philip and I wrote this report because we were, as many in the U.S. and elsewhere, increasingly worried about developments with respect to Taiwan and China and the U.S. role therein. Indeed, in the last 72 hours, we've had the largest challenge by PLA aircraft of Taiwan in years. And of course, I think as we speak, we have uh, two distinguished former deputy secretaries of state who've been sent to Taiwan by President Biden to uh, reinforce uh, his view of the importance of Taiwan. So uh, this is a subject that uh, is hot and getting hotter. And uh, we wrote this because we were worried about it. Uh, I wanna just say as we start that uh, the report, and you can get it on CFR.org if you haven't uh, seen it, uh, has 18 specific policy prescriptions uh, with respect to US policy toward Taiwan, most of which we won't discuss today just because of uh, limits of time, but you might wanna have a look. Uh, I wanna go over three slides with you uh, before I turn it over to Philip. First is the issue which our chairman mentioned, which is how important is Taiwan to the United States? And uh, folks who uh, have strong views of this and either uh, suggest that we should have a stronger commitment to Taiwan or uh, a weaker one often don't address uh, whether Taiwan is a vital US national interest. So we've looked at that. And could we have the first slide, please? So what we have here are vital US national interests. We tried to be rigorous about this. So we described them as necessary to safeguard and enhance America's survival in a free and secure nation, which is a very restrictive and high threshold to meet. Uh, and then we've got five of them here, and uh, these will be familiar uh, to many of you. Uh, the first is uh, to prevent the use of uh, WMD against the U.S. or its allies. The second is uh, to stop the spread of nuclear weapons and long-range delivery systems. The third is maintaining balance of power, both regionally and globally. The fourth is to prevent failed states on U.S. borders. And the fifth is to ensure the viability and stability of major global systems. If you look at those five and you think of Taiwan, it's pretty clear that one, two, four, and five uh, do not connect to Taiwan. I won't go over it, but I think if you look at it, you'll see. So that leads us to number three, which has to do with US alliance systems. And there, the question which arises in the debate is, what will happen to the US alliance system in Asia and indeed in Europe too, under various scenarios where the US either does or does not act to defend Taiwan? And the only thing I'd point out here is that the argument that Taiwan does qualify as a vital national interest because of number three depends on domino theories. 
not intrinsically Taiwan, but what would happen as dominoes fall across Asia in our alliance system. And we all know the weakness of domino theories, Vietnam reminds us, and other uh, examples. Uh, second is we look at is how do the, we think the Chinese look at trends in Taiwan. Can I have the second slide, please? And the trends are exceedingly bad for China. Uh, if you look at these, uh, uh, China has worked on various strategies to try to bring Taiwan closer to uh, what they call the motherland and has produced no movement toward unification. Hong Kong and uh, the oppression in Hong Kong has killed the one country, two systems concept. Uh, all the trends, the public uh, polling in Taiwan are toward separation for the reasons that are indicated there. Uh, Taiwan's uh, successful mitigation of, of the virus has strengthened its international standing. Support for Taiwan is stronger in the U.S. than in many decades. There's uh, uh, legislation being introduced very, uh, virtually every week in the Congress to strengthen ties with uh, Taiwan. Uh, the Biden administration, and I mentioned uh, Rich Armitage and Jim Steinberg, who are now in Taiwan, but uh, they have called our uh, policy, their policy toward ta Taiwan is rock solid. And then finally, uh, if we have these trends, uh, what is the Chinese leadership concluding from them? And it's hard to, uh, at least for Philip and I, to think that there's an option for them uh, if these trends continue, which are likely uh, beyond force to, uh, to try to deal with their objective of, uh, of unifying uh, Taiwan. Uh, so uh, finally, uh, the uh, general sentiment, I think it's fair to say among experts about uh, the danger of uh, uh, China using military force against Taiwan is no that for a variety of very good reasons, uh, despite their increasing concern about it, they will not use force against Taiwan in the foreseeable future. However, if we can see the third slide, please. This is just to remind us how often such expert opinion is wrong. So you can see in 1950, uh, with respect to the Korean War, 56 Suez, 62 Cuban Missile Crisis, 73 Yom Kippur War, Afghanistan in 79, Iraq in 90, Russia and Ukraine in 2014, and it, the last kick is in 2020X, most experts dismiss the possibility that China would use force against Taiwan. We're not predicting it but we think we ought to be ready. The United States ought to be ready if it were to occur. Over to you, Philip. Just to transition from what Bob was saying, uh, we, uh, we don't know whether or not uh, China plans to invade Taiwan. We can run a theory where they might, and we can run the theory uh, where they won't. We, uh, since we don't know, what we can know is what we can see. 
what we can see is that China is in a pre-war condition. Um, by pre-war condition, we don't mean that they have decided on war. We mean that they are doing two things that countries do when they, when they get ready. The first is they start conditioning their population politically and rhetorically for the possibility of a conflict and its necessity. The Chinese government has been doing that. The second thing they do is they start raising the readiness and exercise tempo of their forces to widen and deepen the readiness of their forces, which then creates some challenges on the intelligence side because you get more and more signals and it gets more and more difficult to interpret the significance of those. So we do think both of those things are happening um, and it's hard to know what they mean, but Bob and I therefore think that we need to take these possibilities very seriously indeed. So when people appreciate a situation in international affairs, they mix together three kinds of judgments. The first is a judgment of value. Uh, do we care about this? The second is a judgment of reality, what's going on. And the third is a judgment about action. What can we do? And these judgments influence each other because you tend not to worry too much about actions for things you don't care about and so on. Bob has already talked a little bit about the value judgments that go in, um, into this crisis. And we've mentioned our, um, our careful and worried uh, judgment about the reality of what we can see going on. Uh, what I'm gonna focus in my part of the presentation are on some of the action judgments. The action, uh, a lot of people can easily debate, do we care about Taiwan? Do we not care about Taiwan? Um, looking at history, oftentimes the action judgments are the most important variable, yet are often the most dynamic and least well understood. So, Let's just look at some of the um, action, just starting with the different scenarios by which China um, might take military action against Taiwan. Let's put up the first slide. So we basically break it down into three different scenarios. In the first scenario, um, China takes action on Taiwan's periphery, uh, perhaps against say offshore islands. Could we move forward and take a look at a map? So when people talk about offshore islands, they mainly talk about um, uh, there's an island that's south off this map, um, deep in the South China Sea, uh, Taiping, which uh, Taiwan claims and to which the Chinese pay some attention. A lot of the recent military exercises and drone flights by the Chinese have focused on this place here, the Pradas Atoll. Um, which as you can see is about midway between sort of Hong Kong and the big Chinese bases at Hainan and the Luzon Strait and the Bashi Channel, which are one of the great outlets into the deep Pacific uh, from the South China Sea. Uh, Pradas is basically uninhabited except by Taiwan's defenders. Uh, noticing the Chinese attention last year to Pradas, Taiwan rushed hundreds of soldiers and Marines uh, to defend Pradas, who are there now um, on this atoll out in the ocean. Um, another possibility would be an attack on populated offshore islands like uh, Pengu, uh, sometimes called the Pescadores, or Kinmen and Matsu, the, the Quemoy and Matsu islands right off the uh, coast of mainland China. Um, 
the big question, go back to the first slide before this one. The big question we had about um, this scenario of China invading Taiwan's periphery is the question of what exactly would China accomplish by doing this? Um, the answer could be, oh, it will terrify Taiwan and intimidate them. Yes, perhaps, but uh, everything China has done so far to try to intimidate Taiwan has actually been counterproductive. It tends to further delegitimize China and Taiwan's politics, make any peaceful reconciliation with China less likely, and it actually weakens the pro-Chinese political parties in Taiwan. So you come back to the question, what will this accomplish? It will certainly, it will uh, frighten Taiwan, but that fear and anxiety may not work in China's benefit and will also frighten the rest of the world and basically help create a lot of the things China might want to avoid without actually having addressed the main question. But the Chinese might not see it that way. A second scenario is China could quarantine Taiwan. In this scenario, we don't mean a blockade of food and, and energy. The quarantine we have in mind is one where they see that the United States is helping Taiwan uh, uh, build up its defenses. And China says, we're not going to tolerate that anymore. So we are simply going to uh, control international access to Taiwan. And we are going to screen incoming uh, shipping air or sea, and the shipping that we think is suspicious, uh, we will divert for customs clearance on the mainland, air or sea. Uh, China uh, in January passed Coast Guard law that expands the authorities to do just this sort of scenario. In a way, of course, those who are familiar with history will recognize this is a kind of a Cuban Missile Crisis scenario in reverse. Um, the Chinese would, be, instead of the Americans saying, we're not going to let you Soviets put these missiles in Cuba, the Chinese were going to be saying, uh, we're not going to let you Americans keep sending harpoon missiles to Taiwan. And we're going to interdict shipping and screen it. We're not going to interfere with the daily ferries and so on. Uh, we'll just check out what we want to check out. So it's a kind of a denial of access strategy. That's a scenario. And then one has to work through uh, the practical responses to that by America or its allies. And in the third scenario, uh, China could of course just invade Taiwan. Uh, the invasion scenarios tend to have two uh, um, kind of two uh, sub-scenarios, if you will. There is a, uh, one is a quick decapitation invasion that relies heavily on airborne and heliborne assaults. Uh, it relies on special operations forces to quickly decapitate Taiwan's government, to then open up airfields and harbors for the landing of larger Chinese forces. There's, then, the, then there's the more traditional siege and amphibious assault. Um, the point to make about the invasion scenarios is that intrinsically from a military point of view, uh, these sorts of assaults are just a very difficult military problem. So this, the situation for Taiwan is not hopeless. And then people have analyzed Taiwan's defenses. And the usual conclusion is that theoretically, Taiwan might be able to offer a robust defense to these scenarios, at least for a time. 
but Taiwan has not yet built up its defenses in a way that um, maximizes the likelihood of realizing that theoretical potential of self-defense. Um, they are not building up, say, the way in Israel or even a Switzerland built up its armed forces. Instead, they have ended conscription and traditionally spent a lot of their money on big ticket items. And we have been counseling for a long time that they should instead pursue things we call asymmetric defense that emphasizes these theoretical possibilities. But a few analysts believe that Taiwan is really there yet, but they could get there, perhaps. Now, let me now turn to the options that the United States has in scenarios like these. Next slide. So we see, Bob and I see four basic approaches. The first approach is the, the United States should not plan on the direct U.S. defense of Taiwan. This is straightforward. Uh, various academics and others have said, you know what, this is China's sphere of influence, not ours. This is uh, not our vital interests. Um, we should just not plan on the direct U.S. defense, period. And that is not the position Bob and I have taken in our report, but there are people who hold this view. Second approach. In this approach, the United States would not commit in advance to the direct US defense of Taiwan, yet it would plan as if the United States might do that. It would therefore be unclear whether the United States would provide direct defense of Taiwan. It would also be unclear what role Japan or other allies would play in these defensive plans because those roles are not being rehearsed and so on. Further, it would be unclear about whether the US defense plans involve attacks into the Chinese mainland and open the door to general war with China. The second approach is what we believe is the current status quo policy of the United States. Uh, this, uh, this series of mysteries. Um, I, uh, we, can, we comment on that approach just with this, that anyone analyzing alternative U.S. military strategies for Taiwan, like this, this status quo approach, is, are people who are now studying a fog. In that fog, uh, some analysts assert that current defense plans are adequate, though this readiness may not be evident to the public. Others assert that the current strategy is a Potemkin village, wishful assurances from a country that has already displayed this trait so often in recent years, from Iraq to Afghanistan, in pandemics or in Texan winters. On the other hand, reacting to our report, some current and former insiders think our worries are dead right that if the emperor is not naked, the emperor's garb is at least threadbare. On the other hand, others claim that we're wrong, that we just can't see the clothes the emperor is wearing, nor are we seeing the tailors who are so hard at work in, in fabricating the garment. Well, this is the challenge of debating war plans and defense preparedness in this environment. Um, Bob and I do not just assume the worst. 
Instead, humbled by uncertainty and what is at stake, we just do, are reluctant to trust such mysteries and vague assurances. So that, that brings us to an alternative third approach. The third approach is that the United States could commit, plan, and prepare to share responsibility for direct defense of Taiwan, straight up. These scenarios usually assume that the United States would plan on hitting the targets in the Chinese mainland that are involved in the military actions against Taiwan. Um, the only comment one can make about this third option, um, there are many comments one can make about it, but one comment one can make is that these do, these do have a little bit of a whiff about them of Douglas MacArthur in 1950 and 1951. Um, in these two respects, uh, first, there is a danger of radical underestimation of the Chinese, which MacArthur exhibited in his March to the Yalu, uh, a, a wishful defense plan, which did not hedge against the, adequately against the dangers. And second, uh, MacArthur in late 50 and early 51 was somewhat casual in his approach to planning for general war against China and the strikes and blockades against the Chinese mainland that he advocated to the president and which were among the reasons for his eventual dismissal in April of 1951. But this third approach is being seriously advocated by people now in the United States and by members of the US Congress for instance, in the Taiwan Defense Act that was proposed by Senator Hawley last year. There isn't then a fourth approach that's possible. This is the one that Bob and I advocate. In the fourth approach, in addition to the second status quo approach, the United States would prepare and rehearse a parallel allied plan, a parallel allied plan that could challenge Chinese denial of access and ship defense supplies to Taiwan. Now go to the next slide because I want to, we want to delve a little bit more deeply into this option. When you break down this option, I want to call attention to three aspects that Bob and I think are very important. First note that in this option, the plan places the burden very clearly on China to widen any war beyond, tai beyond Taiwan. Rather than the United States starting to attack Chinese forces in its efforts to help Taiwan defend itself, and thereby the United States is initiating war against China, in, these, in this scenario, the burden would be on China to attack American and we hope allied above all Japanese forces that are involved in trying to help Taiwan defend itself. Second aspect, second variable to notice, even if China attacks United States and Japan near Taiwan, this plan does not assume automatically that such a war should extend to the Chinese mainland. It is not casual in developing a plan that opens the door to general war with China, which is an idea that at the very least needs to be thought through all the way. 
And that includes, by the way, the parallel actions Russians, North Koreans, and Iranians would take in that scenario. The third uh, variable that we uh, call out is that instead, the United States and its allies should prepare visibly and in advance what they would do politically and economically if there was a limited war. This is quite realistic. We believe if there was a limited war in which Americans and Japanese were being killed in a conflict that China had triggered, we believe that overnight, overnight the United States would break economic relations of all kinds with China, and ideally Japan would do that too if its citizens uh, had been killed. And further, that Japan and the United States would embark on programs of, of mobilization and remilitarization of a kind that would need to be reckoned with, and which for Japan would be a fundamental historic shift from its position since 1945. Since we believe it is realistic to expect that these things would happen after the outbreak of a limited war, we think it is vital to begin planning for that scenario now, visibly, in advance, so that the Chinese leadership can reckon with this possibility as clearly as possible before a crisis occurs in order to deter a war from breaking out at all. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, you've really laid a lot on the table and beautifully distilled uh, the architecture of your paper. Uh, I'd like to turn now to uh, Jim Mattis. Thank you, uh, Larry. Thanks, uh, both of you, uh, Robert and Philip, for this very worthy effort. Uh, I think it is probably the most specific and the clearest paper I've seen on this issue uh, that I've read. I would point out that the national defense strategy that still seems to be operant, adopted four years ago, uh, and still apparently embraced by the, uh, the new administration, talked about great power competition, foremost, of course, being China as the great power that we're, we're most concerned with. But the policy goal of great power competition is great power peace. And you need a strategy to get the peace. You can't just say, this is our policy and then move on. So this, this is filling in in a very worthy way from its very first sentence in the foreword, uh, because we have to note that relations between uh, PRC and the US uh, will largely define, determine the character of our time, and I would add the character of our children's time on this planet. And the gravity of the situation should be accepted, uh, not just in Beijing and, and Washington, but in every capital where concern for the people uh, is foremost. Uh, and I wanna talk to that in just a moment. But uh, I think Robert and Phil, you've done yeoman's work, reducing the chance for miscalculation and that is really what is coming through here. Uh, I think there'd been a lot of reason why we could assume that the CCP and President Xi could miscalculate based on the lack of clarity uh, out of the democracies. And so you've done a great service, I think, here. The, the, it goes to the heart of how are two nuclear-armed superpowers going to manage their differences 
when we step on each other's toes, as we certainly will step on each other's toes. And this is critical. Uh, I would point out uh, right now that we talk about cooperation, competition, and confrontation, doing each where we can, where we must, uh, that sort of thing. But it must be accepted right now that cooperation activities are not dominant. They're not dominating the relationship at all. Uh, they're far from it. And Taiwan is, the, is a spark, especially with what we've seen recently, uh, to open conflict. And that's a, a very real concern. I don't think I share your, your, the author's views that this is not in the offing right now, partly just because of the difficulty of a military strike against Taiwan. But what are we doing with the time we have now to push off any such misadventure uh, so that the world is not thrust into this position that uh, any Chinese uh, adventurism would, would bring? Uh, maintaining our one China policy. I think it's the right thing to do, but that is not that is not a strategy to achieve the end state that we're looking for here. Uh, I think this strategy is very timely in its recognition uh, that there is too much left unsaid and undone right now to try to maintain a degree of stability. Uh, I think there's excellent use of history throughout this and history won't give us the answers they will tell how others have successfully or unsuccessfully dealt with such issues or similar issues in the past. And that allows us to ask the right questions. And that's where I thought the use of history here is very, very informative. Um, I think that when we look at the scenarios that are put forward, I think they're very realistic. Uh, and I think also that uh, when we look at how to deter ourselves, finding ourselves in some of those dangerous uh, situations, <clears throat> the options are the kind that the president can consider. These are not uh, theoretical. These are not, um, you know, if this, then that. These are very clear cut and they allow you in, in the Hegel's finest dialectic to start there and then move up uh, as far as how we are actually going to embrace them. <clears throat> One thing that comes through loud and clear uh, on the options uh, are, is expanding the competitive space. And here, I think it's critical that that part of this paper be considered. Uh, the PRC, if they were to engage in some of the activities we're concerned with in this paper, would find themselves vulnerable diplomatically, economically, and militarily. And those vulnerabilities need to be highlighted to the people in Beijing. Remember, they do not answer to the will of their people. So they are not primarily interested with the Chinese people. The CCP is interested in staying in power. If we don't look at the role of ideology here, then we are missing a fundamental because we can think in mirror image terms of, of course, the Chinese people don't want this war. Uh, well, that may very well be true. It is also irrelevant. Uh, we have to recognize that we are dealing with a decision body in Beijing that has a much narrower interest and cannot understand how Chinese people, be they on, on the mainland or on Taiwan, can love China but not love the CCP. And so long as that colors China's strategy, 
that they can't understand that, then the danger goes up and our ability to anticipate is not at all like our ability to anticipate another type of nation state. I think in uh, whether it be deterrence or conflict, if it goes to that, the role of allies is critical. Uh, for all of the, uh, you know, the quad, some people are criticizing the quad as this and that, uh, basically irrelevant. And we hear this out of Beijing, just the fact that they're so strident in dismissing it shows that the quad is not irrelevant to them. And that gives a very clear view of what they are most concerned with, I think. They import most of their energy supplies from the Middle East. They know what that means if they go to a conflict with the United States and the U.S. Fifth Fleet and Seventh Fleet are in between the Middle East and, and the mainland ports. They know the vulnerabilities they face diplomatically in terms of isolation and economically uh, when a country like the Czech Republic can go in with their Senate to visit Taiwan. Czechoslovakia is condemned, but Czechoslovakia says, remember, we were a small country in a tough neighborhood in 1939, and we understand what's going on here. I bring this up because the alliance uh, partners, uh, whatever you want to call it, those kind of issues will be critical to giving this any strategy, but certainly some of these options, I think, uh, traction. I would also point out that the vulnerabilities that they face could drive China to move more quickly. Uh, the vulnerabilities are demographic. The vulnerabilities are certainly uh, economic uh, as, as their uh, economy uh, comes out of uh, COVID very strong, but so are others. And I would just add, uh, I, I, I know I'm to uh, get over this, uh, Philip, uh, or excuse me, uh, Larry, very quickly. Let me close with this point. There is a clear need for sustaining a disciplined, rigorous, philosophical, strategic dialogue between Beijing and Washington. This is every three months from one capital back and forth, a sustained dialogue as we go forward. And we should be doing that in full discussion with our own allies and partners so their ideas are incorporated so that the more we incorporate them, the more compelling this will be. But I think it's critical. And I would just take one quote from the gathering storm that uh, from Philip and uh, Robert's work when they say that we believe credible options for a Taiwan crisis can be ready, they've presented them, ones that the president could meaningfully consider, they could seek to avoid a confrontation and strengthen deterrence. Uh, I think that is really where this paper is so valuable right there. Back over to you, Larry. Thank you so much for these really powerful and insightful com uh, comments. And now I'd like to go to Admiral Ellis. Well, thanks, Larry. And uh, I add my uh, compliments uh, to both uh, Robert and Philip for the, for the great work that they've done. Uh, a paper that perhaps uniquely touches on all of the elements in play as we wrestle with defining a strategy for the Indo-Pacific and principally our relationship with and responsibilities and perhaps obligations to Taiwan. Uh, in addition to your concise summary of our nation's historical journey with regard to Taiwan, I especially appreciate your focus on the specifics of the scenarios that we might confront, and more importantly, a 
specific strategy for dealing with them. Uh, my wife reminds me that Charles de Gaulle used to begin many of his speeches with the phrase, things being what they are, and then went on to postulate appropriate actions. Your willingness to do so is regrettably not as common as we might wish, and it's, uh, and it's very welcome. And again, thanks to you both. But before we leave the past, there's a historical element that I'd like to probe a bit with you, uh, that of the off-noted risk of our uh, sleepwalking into a conflict with uh, China over Taiwan, or less likely the South China Sea. I'm not sure sleepwalking is the right analogy these days. The alarm clock seems to have gone off. But uh, in your paper, you cite several times the Czech crisis of 1938. Uh, Jim mentioned it as well. But you also mentioned Poland in 39. And I'm reminded of the first lines of that Auden poem, September 1st, 1939, which goes, I sit in one of the dives on 52nd Street, uncertain and afraid, as the clever hopes expire of a low, dishonest decade. I wonder in your collective view if the last 10 years have been our own low, dishonest decade. I mean, how much of what we now confront is a result of failing to acknowledge the now obvious, how much is due to distracted inattention with the uh, due to other regional uh, interest, what can be attributed to excessive globalized optimism and what if any elements could be attributed to uh, quite frankly, diplomatic malpractice on the part of at least uh, uh, several administrations and nations. Uh, just a point to, uh, to consider, uh, not trying to, uh, to cast blame or, uh, or ask uh, who lost China, but, uh, uh, but uh, I, I do think it's worth, uh, worth some inquiry. Uh, of all the potential uh, uh, friction points with China, as you have uh, alluded to, both of you, uh, Many of the, uh, the current defense uh, strategists identify a conflict with Taiwan as the key scenario, with all others being uh, what I call lesser included offensives, uh, pun intended. Uh, they believe that the defense establishment should focus on preparing the military for a Taiwan scenario above all others. And they say we must be able to effectively defend Taiwan because it's important to frustrating China's strategy to achieve uh, hegemony in Asia. Uh, one of the most interesting points of your paper, and I think everyone has noted, is that you seem to specifically acknowledge that an effective military defense of Taiwan by the U.S. and possibly Japan is, quite frankly, not realistically possible, and instead propose the creation of a campaign plan that, while including what you term as a carefully orchestrated military challenge to a PRC quarantine siege or assault, postulates an allied response and resupply effort which could be calibrated to present the Chinese with a choice of, uh, of uh, acquiescence or, or uh, increased escalation. And in that, you believe, lies some of the deterrent pressure you seek to bring to bear. But arguably, even to affect that more limited response, we'll still need a major force reconstitution, rebalance, supply prepositioning, and major ally and partner contributions. I mean, studies as far back as the uh, the 2015 RAND study have documented the dramatic improvement in uh, Chinese military capabilities. And, uh, and while it's often noted that they haven't yet reconstituted or built, I guess, in this case, an amphibious capability, the fact of the matter is that every one of their large coastal ferries is built to military specifications. And so I think we may be uh, uh, perhaps misled by, uh, by the lack of an amphibious capability. But nonetheless, things have changed. And uh, uh, you know, as when I was there in 1996 on the aptly named USS Independence, uh, uh, conducting uh, 
two carrier battle group operations. I could not do that today. We could not safely uh, operate with impunity where we were able to do uh, to uh, just 25 years ago. And uh, and I think, uh, you know, our recent actions really, while the rhetoric has been there, I, I'm not sure that the, the reality of the force structure uh, has been appropriately allocated either. And on our side, I think the much ballyhooed pivot to the Pacific uh, has to be smell, spelled with a, a very small P. Um, second point is I worked once worked for a Secretary of Defense who had a pension for detailed but interestingly uh, rarely questioned the details of an operational plan. Perhaps in an intentional effort to confound his briefers, he never questioned the details of any plan. Instead, he always focused on the assumptions on which the plan was based. And with that in mind, uh, but an effort to understand and not confound, I've got a couple of questions to consider. First, you appropriately define the U.S. strategic objective re regarding Taiwan is to preserve its political and economic autonomy and its dynamism as a free society and uh, U.S. allied deterrence without triggering an attack on Taiwan. And uh, you note that this is not a straightforward mechanical process, but would depend on Washington's accurate and enduring estimate of Chinese of China's sufferance for such U.S. policies towards Taiwan and the strength of Beijing's commitment to existing and future red lines. You go on to note that this effort will demand what, in my words, I call precision-guided diplomacy and you term quality U.S. decision-making and policies. One can define quality in a lot of ways, but if it includes nuanced, agile, and flexible actions, attentive and insightful listening, which is not at all the same as not talking, and a deep understanding of what you've already pointed out is the traditionally opaque Chinese leadership and its goals, personally, culturally, and societally, then one can't help but wonder the assumption, do we in this administration or in any other have the skills to consistently get that balance exactly right, to walk along that knife edge when the costs of miscalculation or misinterpretation loom so large and What's our margin of error if we get it just a little bit wrong? My second question relates to uh, the excellent portion of your report on uh, the deterioration of U.S. and China relations, which you, uh, you so ably chronicle. You indicate that the critical variable, uh, whether China is successful in its purpose, is the domestic, economic, military, and diplomatic strength and resolve of the United States and its allies, and not emphasis added, Chinese actions. And in this context, you note that uh, there's a huge challenge for the president. But then you uh, follow with some somber sounding statements that the U.S. and China are well on the way to confrontation, which could eventually lead to war. And in the past few years, we seem uninterested in using diplomacy. There seems to be a dichotomy here, I guess, uh, uh, that, this, that the die is not yet cast. But you know, it seems like we're trying to acknowledge the view of F. Scott Fitzgerald that the, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. Uh, or maybe it's divided at the, at, the, uh, at the level, perhaps. Is it the strategic level where we can have optimism when we dispassionately consider the economic linkages, the growing global trends of dissatisfaction with Chinese norms of behavior or the the off-noted litany of purported problems, societal, economic, and demographic that will ultimately curb China's ambitions and, and hopefully, you hope, a shared aversion for conflict, and at the same time, be congenitally pessimistic at the tactical and practical level where the military realities dominate, the risks of miscalculation or low-level human error are, are high, and the 
the lack of a clear American commitment, much less that of allies all combined to, to risk providing the spark that Jim talked about that ignites the, uh, the wildfire. In that vein, it was interesting. I was uh, preparing for today. I, I read an article on an accidental war published by Thomas Schelling in 1960. And given the amount of fiction recently published on a possible conflict with China from Ghost Fleet to the more recent 2034, I was amused to see that the opening line penned by Schelling 61 years ago, if war is too important to leave to the generals, accidental war should not be left to novelists. Uh, he's right, of course, but the genre will always have some appeal uh, to prevent an accidental war and deter intentional conflict. Your paper offers, as we've already noticed, some interesting concepts, including the forced assistance and confrontation effort that I've already noted. Uh, you also advocate very powerfully for a very public crisis contingency political military planning effort involving U.S. as an allies. Interestingly, far from being secret, you seem to imply that the plan's deterrent character would rely on the Chinese understanding precisely or nearly so the expected consequences of their action. You also imply that such a detailed and public planning would also be a necessary element in convincing the American, Japanese, and even Taiwanese societies of the importance of the effort. This seems to align with the old military maxim that you reveal to deter and concealed the win, but there's, is there a risk that such a fulsome disclosure of our collective intent, the timeline for its execution and the involved forces might be a significant drawback if deterrence fails and conflict follows. In summary, thanks for this great work and having the courage to challenge the conventional wisdom, which in my view sometimes is far too conventional and not nearly wise enough. I do believe that an understanding of how we got here is essential uh, though I'm not in favor of the blame game. I appreciate your pragmatism and your candor in assessing the military risks and realities, even as you articulate the fact that though the active defense of Taiwan may be problematic, there will be important military, economic, and geopolitical elements of your new deterrence concept. I would only offer that the skills to carefully balance all of this in execution may have atrophied or retired or more likely not have been exercised or practiced for a long time. As we all know, in time of crisis, even with the best of talent, signals get missed or missent. The first report is often wrong. As we say, no plan survives first contact with the enemy. Exquisiteness may be beautiful, but it is often robustness, resilience, and, and leadership that, uh, that carry the day. Finally, since we all see a need for both of the elements he describes in charting a course to Taiwan, I conclude with a quote from George Kennan, delivered at the National War College in 1947. You have no idea how much it contributes to the general politeness and pleasantness of diplomacy when you have a quiet little armed force in the background. People who are otherwise very insulting and very violent become just as pleasant. Why they couldn't be nicer if they were belonging to the same golf club and played golf together every Sunday morning. Having once played golf in the shadow of the Great Wall, we should all hope for such an outcome. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Jim. And I'd like now uh, to give uh, Bob Blackwell and Philip Zelico a chance to offer any additional thoughts or reactions they have in response to these two sets of comments. Maybe I'll go first quickly and just say, I agree entirely with Jim that this is a extraordinary diplomatic challenge for the United States. Because uh, if we look at uh, even post-World War II history, 
we've had some high moments of terrific uh, American diplomacy. But I don't think um, any of us would uh, describe that as the routine uh, U.S. response to external affairs. And uh, so uh, what we're proposing uh, is uh, uh, dependent, at least to some degree, on exactly the quality you were, you were mentioning. I have to say, and this is not in the report, but uh, uh, the specific point I'm about to make, and then I'll turn it over to Philip, um, I think that the encounter in Alaska uh, made uh, U.S.-China relations worse, not better. And I don't think it was an example of quality U.S. diplomacy of the kind that uh, we all would like to see. And so the notion is uh, that one has to do both at the same time, uh, both prepare the United States uh, to uh, react to these contingencies before they occur, uh, and secondly, uh, to uh, engage China in a serious diplomatic discussion uh, 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 to try to strengthen deterrence. And in that regard, uh, just to conclude, uh, yes, uh, Jim, we do think that the strategy we described should be public. Uh, it should be as well known to uh, the Chinese as our uh, re uh, 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 response to a, a Soviet invasion of Germany was to the Soviets. That was no mystery. And what we want China uh, to uh, consider is all of the comprehensive damage it would do to uh, uh, it, even if the PLA says we have military superiority and we can do this. We want others in the room to say, yes, but here are a variety of other things that would happen, which would be disastrous uh, for China. Thanks. I'd like to uh, start with one of Admiral Ellis's observations where he guessed that we were optimistic at the grand strategic level, but perhaps were pessimistic on, at some of the operational level. And I actually think he read our report about right on that point. I think we're trying to basically say America doesn't have to be existentially pessimistic about the situation with China. This is a doable problem at the grand level, but we are worried about the challenges in managing this particular issue above all others. Um, for the reasons that Bob just summarized a minute ago. Um, I also um, want to agree with something else Admiral Ellis called out, which was he, he noted that the option we advocated, that fourth option on the slide, would call for a significant reconstitution and adjustment of American forces and a level of allied cooperation that isn't there yet. He's right about it. Um, this is one of the reasons we're calling for work on that. We have, people have responded to our report saying, oh, if we wanted to do the Blackwell Zellico stuff, we're doing all that now. Uh, we, uh, we can handle all that now. Uh, these are mostly people who want option three. Um, in fact, I, we don't think we're at all ready at this point to do option four. We think we should, there's a ton of things we can do to get option four in shape. 
our view is that it is more realistic to prep option four than to prep option three. Um, and that's, that's just a, and that's in fact that the prep of option three would require things that is likely to set off the war that you're trying to deter. So uh, the, the final point where I'll close actually in, in this response is on the arresting quote of W.H. Auden's poem, uh, 1939. And the challenge is to whether we look back and regard what's happened as a low dishonest decade. At the higher, you know, there is a, uh, and I wanna combat, uh, you all of you will have your own views about the Obama administration or the Trump administration and need no education on that from us. There is caricature out there that over the last 10 years, uh, until the Trump administration, the United States policies towards China was naive and foolishly trusting. But then the Trump administration came in, tore off those rose-colored blinders and saw things clear. I think that caricature, and I think Bob may agree, that caricature is overdrawn and mistaken. Um, I think an accurate portrait of what happened over the last 20 years you can get from books like Tom Christensen's book, The China Challenge, which actually goes in the detail of exactly what transactions, and what things we were working on with the Chinese, including areas where we had some success. It's just, it doesn't fit the caricature very easily. But on Taiwan specifically, Taiwan specifically, um, I think in a variety of ways, we and Taiwan and Japan have been distracted and complacent. And it's that distraction and complacency that our report is now trying to overcome. Great, uh, thank you both so much. I've got several questions I'd like to pose now that uh, come from the audience and from myself. Let me begin by merging a question that our Taiwan program project manager, Karis Templeman posed and merge it um, with my own, uh, uh, Philip and Bob, and it's a question about time. One could argue that um, the situation in Taiwan, in China's eyes politically, can't get any worse in this sense, uh, that politically, psychologically, Taiwan is gone. There's never going to be uh, <clears throat> a, a popular sentiment for, quote, reunification, end quote. So it's not going to be worse five or 10 years from now. Um, and so the time problem then creates this dilemma. If China thinks that it has, it can afford to be patient because it can't get any worse. But if we start taking affirmative efforts to arm Taiwan, and if Taiwan takes uh, some of the efforts, uh, I, I think you will agree it needs to take uh, in terms of becoming, um, you know, maybe uh, <clears throat> more like Israel and Switzerland in terms of its uh, mobilization of uh, a complete societal readiness, uh, then, uh, and, and we start building overtly the alliance structure to deter, might that have the perverse effect of signaling to China that they can't wait because 
uh, strategically uh, in terms of Taiwan readiness and allied readiness, the situation for China will be worse in five years than it is now? Uh, it's a great question, Larry, and you're right that that's a danger. So um, here's the choice you have is um, you can uh, shrug your shoulders and give up on doing anything that helps Taiwan better defend itself in order to avoid just the scenario you outlined, avoid provoking China. Uh, we don't advocate that, but you can, one can make that case. Then you've got, well, if, if you don't make that argument, then you've got, okay, I've got two ways to help Taiwan defend itself. One is I quietly and without ostentatious bluster uh, try to help Taiwan build up its defense capabilities. Second option is I will uh, noisily, and by the way, the noise will be in inevitable if you do it this way. I'm gonna build up a lot of American capabilities in this part of the world that don't exist now. I'm gonna put Marine mini bases in the Ryukyu Islands, do all the political flack with Japan to get that done. I'm gonna preposition a lot more stuff and I'm gonna make it clear that we are exercising and readying the capability for the forward defense of the Taiwan Straits in a massive credible way. And that's gonna be like a five-year plan. And we're gonna start executing that five-year plan. It seems to me if I've got a choice between those two scenarios, for how to try to strengthen Taiwan. This scenario one is the one that has the lower chance of triggering a war than scenario two. But there is, again, the, the, the other choice, which is to say, we're just not gonna build up Taiwan at all for, for fear of, of triggering the scenario, triggering the war. That's, uh, that's an alternative position. That's just not the course we advocate. Good. Uh, I just chime in with one thought, which is uh, that, uh, at least in my experience in government, there's no serious policy prescription that doesn't have some downsides to it. I was once in a meeting with George Schultz in which he asked someone, will you just prescribe something with great passion? What are the downsides? And the person said, there are none. <laughs> and that person didn't get invited to any more meetings uh, with Secretary Schultz. So the downside that you describe exists. And it's a matter of judgment and how one handles it tactically. But as Philip said, uh, the alternative of, uh, of passivity doesn't seem to improve the situation. And finally, of course, the way you began, Chairman, which was, well, things can't get worse in Taiwan for China. Yes, they can. Uh, they can get worse because the sentiment uh, in, in uh, Taiwan is hardening. Uh, we can't say that independence uh, is, uh, is uh, gone uh, forever in the Taiwan public. And, and uh, we tried in the report to look at how much patience does China have? And it's one thing to have patience when the status quo in Taiwan is uh, continuing. It's quite another to have patience in Beijing 
when every trend line is negative. Every trend line is bad and getting worse. And uh, so uh, we deal with that by saying, you may be right, Chairman, uh, in your uh, implication of your question, but let's prepare as if you're wrong. Um, uh, I agree. And of course, uh, Tsai Ing-wen, the current president of Taiwan, has been remarkably restrained, uh, but she will uh, leave office in 2024, and there's no guarantee that her successor will be equally restrained. Let's talk about technology. We have a couple of interrelated questions from our Hoover colleague, uh, Marcos Kunalakis. Uh, one is about semiconductors. Uh, the world economy and Taiwan's role in it looks a little different now than maybe five or 10 years because of uh, Taiwan's leadership uh, role in the production of, uh, crucial role in the production of advanced semiconductors. That perhaps makes it uh, even um, more uh, of a, uh, a jewel in China's crown to be reunited, uh, but uh, it also makes it more strategically important to the United States. So question one in this pair, should we be speaking to the American public more or should we be elevating more the central strategic importance of Taiwan's role in the supply chain for this critical input to uh, all of the advanced operations of a modern economy. And two, you've had relatively li little to say about cyber, both in terms of the possibility that the PRC, uh, the edge of the PRC spear of military coercion might be a cyber attack and what we could do in response uh, in, in a cyber role that might uh, deter uh, PRC aggression. So if you could take those two questions. Let me start with cyber uh, and then uh, Philip can go on. Uh, well, uh, cyber of course is a hot topic with respect to China and Russia, Iran and so forth. Uh, and we do mention it uh, in the report, but uh, not in any detail. And the reason, and, and uh, our two colleagues certainly know this, uh, top to bottom, it's very hard to talk about cyber uh, the, in a non-compartment uh, situation. Uh, and so one can be very general about it. Well, if there's a massive coercive cyber attack on Taiwan, the United States should certainly respond in some way. But to be any more specific, and you can even talk about offensive operations, but the, the, the whole subject is so highly classified that to try a uh, informed discussion about it. But one certainly could convey to the Chinese that we would regard such a massive uh, cyber attack uh, with great seriousness. And we would respond in ways that would seriously damage China. And one could say that. Uh, we uh, haven't been willing so far, and even in the last uh, 72 hours, to be that specific about Chinese behavior. We just express our concern 
and that a, uh, a uh, Chinese attack on Taiwan would not go unanswered in such language, perhaps we can be more pointed. There's a cyber attack scenario against Taiwan. In that case, the question is, it's a little bit like the attacks on the periphery. Like what exactly is that supposed to accomplish? If it's supposed to terrify and intimidate Taiwan, again, it seems to me more likely that it ends up being counterproductive. Um, if it's a cyber scenario against the United States, Bob has addressed some of that. I'll just flag, there are a whole series, and we, we call out this in the report, a whole series of very difficult rules of engagement questions that will arise at the outset of all the scenarios we describe, um, including what uh, our Navy does about Chinese surve civilian surveillance vessels and, uh, and the, cyber, the cyber ROE issues and the space ROE issues are among this very complicated set of issues. The only other aspect I wanna comment on is the one you raised about how do we think of the strategic importance of the Taiwan semiconductor industry in this analysis? Uh, this was actually a factor in the Czech crisis of 1938. Czech, Czechoslovakia in 1938 had the fourth largest arms industry in Europe. And, it, uh, and the German acquisition of that arms industry was an enormous military boost to German military preparedness. So it was a factor. Um, there, the two things I'd call out are this. One, Taiwan can do things to uh, reduce the potential acquisition value of the Taiwan semiconductor industry in a conflict scenario. Uh, this kind of manufacturing is uh, extremely sophisticated and highly vulnerable. And there are things Taiwan can do so that uh, China doesn't easily acquire a capability that is entirely intact. Second though, the United States needs to be a little bit careful as it tries to diversify its global supply chains for semiconductors. There is a push underway right now to basically um, decouple ourselves from dependence on Taiwan manufacture of semiconductors. The strategic arguments for that are now obvious. But you have to be a little bit careful of not doing that to the point where you've actually um, uh, cut Taiwan off and said goodbye, uh, which might then have some effects that, that, are, that are not what you want. Well, uh, and of course, if uh, Taiwan semiconductor uh, manufacturing continues to move some of its production to the United States, uh, that could be a very welcome thing. Uh, both in terms of the relationship and in terms of the dilemma you posed. Let me ask finally about uh, allies. We have just about a minute left. Um, uh, Bob, you've been uh, ambassador to India. I know you're both thinking about Japan. How realistic is it uh, that uh, our, our three uh, vital uh, quad interlocutors um, in the quadrilateral forum that is now taking place, we dare not call it an alliance, uh, that is India, Japan, and um, Australia would um, in their different ways and to their different degrees rise to some sort of um, 
uh, readiness to respond in the event of Chinese aggression? Let me do India and, and perhaps Philip can do Japan. India, uh, the Indians, to quote a very uh, senior Indian uh, minister uh, a few years ago, on Taiwan will fight to the last American. Uh, they are not going to get in, engaged in military, uh, e even military planning with respect to uh, uh, Taiwan. What they will do is move very slowly, incrementally uh, to strengthen their, their relationship with Taiwan. And if uh, China were to invade Taiwan, uh, that would kind of cause obviously a crisis in India-China relations. But on the practical question of will they engage in planning with us uh, of the kind that Philip and I hope would happen with uh, Japan and, and, and Australia and others, no. Quickly, I think Australia will be very helpful, but is not going to play the leading role. But if, if, if there is a coalition, Australia may well be part of it. Um, note the absence of South Korea in the discussion, uh, which is interesting and important given where it is in the region. Now, Japan. Um, we're going to have this meeting with Biden and the Japanese prime minister tomorrow in which they are right now debating whether they can even mention Taiwan in the communique. All right. What the level of the discussion right now is it's a big deal if we can even announce that we're going to walk to first base. Uh, we are postulating options, of course, where we're walking way together, visibly way past first base. So, in fact, to try to deter a war and get and avoid the situation, we think that you need to start conditioning opinion with the kinds of planning in ways that will make sense to the Japanese public because they won't seem too provocative, but nonetheless advance pretty far down the road to start conditioning Japanese opinion to this danger in ways that make sense to them. We see the option of aggressively doing a direct defense of Taiwan and enlisting the Ryukus in that, I think actually could be counterproductive for the United States and Japanese opinion. People should not assume that the Japanese are just gonna follow in lockstep with us on this stuff. So we need to walk this through carefully, but I think the kinds of things we're suggesting are things the Japanese could accept, but they're gonna to wanna to move through this very slowly and carefully one step at a time. And as I say, right now, we're just trying to get to first base. And our proposal is uh, that the United States and Japan needs to go a good deal past that. Great. Uh, Jim Mattis, Jim Ellis, do either of you want to offer any closing thoughts? I just, uh, this is an excellent discussion. I would only point out we need more of these. Uh, we have too long danced around issues, looked the other way. This brings a degree of fidelity to them uh, that we need more of in this country uh, right now. And we're coming out of a strategy-free time by and large. We've got to embrace this kind of work. It's going to be uncomfortable for some people. Well, difficult is never an excuse that history is going to allow us. So let's roll up our sleeves and get to work. Tear it apart uh, what, what uh, Robert and Philip have done, if you've got a better idea but it's a, it's a great start point. 
Yeah, and I would I would echo that, and and it has to begin here. In other words, uh, as as Philip just noted, uh, we want these expansive and extensive dialogues with allies and partners and the like, and uh, we're not ready for that conversation yet. We haven't settled that issue fully at home, and I think this is a, a hugely important first step. And uh, and as I said in my my remarks, uh, I commend them for it. It's uh, it's the kind of conversation that that must be held. Uh, domestically and politically within the United States uh, before we can presume to define an outcome for uh, for neighbors, which is never the right answer in any case. So thank you again. Well, uh, Robert Blackwell, uh, Philip Zelico, you have torn it apart intellectually uh, in the best sense of the word. I think your paper is not only immensely important right now uh, to American foreign policy, but is a model of national security thinking and analysis that students will be studying for a long time to come. So I deeply thank both of you once again and my two colleagues, Admiral Ellis, General Mattis, and all of you who have joined with us. Thank you very much for uh, joining us today for this important discussion. Mm -hmm.